Well, we are going to dive back in tonight. Here, here's the reality of what we've been doing for a little over a year now on Wednesday nights. We have been, uh, we've been attempting to develop a thoroughly biblical worldview. Now, we've gone a lot of different places that you might not initially associate with that, but I want to remind you that when it comes to a, a biblical worldview, a, a distinctly, truly uh, a worldview that is derived completely in line with the actual true God of the universe, uh, what we understand is our worldview is first and foremost built on a theology. There's 10 categories that comprise a worldview. Theology for the Christian, for the biblical worldview, is the foundation. Our, and by theology, I don't necessarily mean all of systematic theology and every doctrine there, but I mean specifically our understanding of who God is. What is he like? What is he for? What is he against? All these questions about who God is. Our understanding about who God is is the foundation upon which everything else in our worldview builds. And so we've spent a lot of time in the last year dealing with the issue of, of theology. Who is our God? We've looked at, well, how are you going to know who God is? Well, you've got to have a source somewhere. God's given us a, a source. It's his word. And we've walked through, looked at the doctrine of scripture, how to read scripture. We've, we've walked through even all of an overview through scripture. So we have a rough idea of what is the actual story that scripture presents. We've mentioned it the last couple of weeks. It's the story of a, a good, all good, all loving, all powerful, all knowing God who creates, uh, creates the, both the seen and the unseen. This triune God creates out of the overflow of his love. He makes humankind as the, the pinnacle of all creation. And we see this play out in chapters one and two of Genesis. You hit chapter three and then you enter, you, you enter into what is, what is uh, the majority of the first half of the story of scripture, which is the fall. We sin, we go against God's character, we do what is wrong. Relationship with God is broken, relationship with each other is broken, relationship with creation is broken, relationship with our own selves, broken. And we are morally responsible for the brokenness now before a holy judge. And, and there in chapter three, God uh, speaks, speaks a word of, of judgment to the serpent. And in that un unveils the first hint at what will be the story of scripture, redemption. God's plan of redemption to redeem men and women who will respond to him in repentance and faith. We see this play out. The pinnacle of this story is the coming of Jesus who fully God and fully man reveals God perfectly to, to all of us who lives the life we fail to live, who dies the death we rightfully deserve, who rises from the grave fully conquering every last bit of sin and sin's child death, able to, to stand and live in victory and offer salvation to those of us who will respond. And, be, and that salvation, because Jesus lives, guarantees us, as we saw Sunday, that though this body may die, we will live, and we will also live for eternity with a resurrected body. And that leads us to the last part of the story, which I would call glory. When Jesus returns in all the fullness of redemption is brought in entirety. This is the story of Scripture. We've looked at uh, philosophy. Philosophy meaning what is true? How do you know something's true? What is real? What actually exists versus what is imaginary? And, and we, we dove into that, the seen and the unseen. There's objective, absolute truth. Why? Because truth is a person, God. There's 
objective, real reality. We're not running around in this room asking ridiculous questions like, is the table you're sitting around a figment of your imagination? Is it a mass hallucination or is it a real physical? We're not asking that. Why? Because of our understanding of truth and reality based on God. So it's, it's taken us a little over a year to work through these categories. And as we come to tonight, we're going to dive back in uh, for a little bit. And so we come to the question of the next, if, if theology is the foundation, and, uh, or, or maybe we'll say the cornerstone, the key piece, and, and then philosophy, what is, what is true, lays, lays a, a top slab there, then, then the next thing to naturally build up is the question of, well, who is God? What is he like? What is true? What is real? The next question is, what is good or bad? What is right or wrong? How do we know good from bad, right or wrong? Is there such thing like that? It's the question of ethics. So on your cheat sheet, I've given you some pretty technical definitions because I think you need to know the word. It's more important you know what it means because you're going to see it play out in different ways. But I gave you a cheat sheet with all of it because if I pronounce half these words, all of us, including myself, are going to go, what did you just say? So by ethics, so understand these definitions are more technical definitions, so I'm not using words how you might use them, or we might even use them in casual conversation, but in technical ways. Ethics is the philosophical study of moral conduct, values, duties, and goodness. Ethics classically is called the philosophy of, uh, is, is called moral philosophy. No different than what we call science today, classically, is natural philosophy. It's a subcategory. Morality, then, is a personal standard. If ethics is a study, morality is a, is, is a personal standard of determining right or wrong. Here's how one person put it. Morality is a container of right and wrong. Ethics is the study of how you discover and use that container. So morality is the container itself, what I do, right or wrong. Ethics is the study of, well, how do I know what's right or wrong? How do we determine what's right or wrong? And how, does, how, how, do, how do we, in determining that, go about using our actions to bring about what is right or what is wrong? Philosophically, there's two basic theories out there that most uh, most ethical theories will fall into. One is the teleological theory. Don't worry, you don't have to remember teleological. Here's what you need to know. A teleological theory is an ethical theory focused on right or wrong being determined by what the outcome is, what the purpose is. Something is right. How do we know something's, something's right? Um, well, if based on its purpose, based on the in goal, based on the objective, based on the value. It's related to the, the purpose. Here's, here's various ideas. If the purpose, if the purpose of good is to maximize our own pleasure, then any actions taken to accomplish that end are right. That would be hedonism. Uh, eudaimonianism. The purpose of human existence is to live a life of flourishing. So what is good? What is good is produces a flourishing life. What is bad? That which takes away from it. Utilitarianism. That what is ethical is to pursue the greatest good for the greatest number of people. So how do I determine what's right or wrong? Well, if it does good to the greatest amount of people, that's right. The end justifies 
than, than the means. Ethical egoism, which by the way, some of these in all of my studies, I've never heard, but in, this, in, the, in the page I got it from, so you're, you probably won't ever hear half these terms, but you will see these ideas in society. Uh, the good life is to being free and looking after one's own interest. Uh, close behind, ethical libertarianism. People live best when they have liberty, but agree not to harm others. Moral skepticism, moral knowledge is inaccessible or impossible. Pragmatism, whatever works. Uh, morality is whatever is useful for science. So does, does what we're doing accomplish the end goal? Then it's good. All to say, here's the basic idea. Teleological theories say, they look at the end, they go, what is good is determined by, by the end. It answers questions. I'm getting away from my notes. What is the good life? What's the purpose or end of a good life? How can this good be secured for as many as possible? It's driven by the end result. So the end result determines what's right or wrong. Deontological theories are going to sound more appealing to us who hold to absolute rights and wrongs. A deontological theory says that uh, what is right or wrong is not determined by the end, but is determined by some some kind of uh, standard that is independent of our situation or circumstance. There's some kind of objective outside standard that determines what is right and wrong. And so you see different theories that accompany with it that are there. Now, the truth is, if you were to try to qualify what, where we stand as believers, we don't fall into either one of those categories neatly. These are man categories. We don't fall into either one neatly, though on the outset you'd go, well, it seems we're deontological. We believe there's an outside standard that exists. This is true, but we don't fall neatly there. Part of why I give you those theories, you're probably never going to use it ever again in your life, and that's okay. Here's why I give you those theories. How do we arrive at a place in society? Let's back up. Western society, that, that, that branch of culture and society that has primarily come out of Europe and, and uh, centuries ago crossed over the Atlantic and has been the primary driver of, of American society, if you rewind the clock back, Western society philosophically was, was very much in line with a lot of things that Scripture said. Now, there might be some ways it was applied wrongly, but there is a time when, well, what's right or wrong? Well, we tie it back to God, to the Bible, to how, how do you all of a sudden get to a place about 600 years later where we're living in a society where society doesn't offers a whole lot of answers for what's right or wrong, but what society's emphatic on is it definitely is not because the Christian God has anything to do with it. In fact, a lot of our society today, if it has anything to do with the Christian God, it's wrong. And not only is it wrong, it's dangerous. How do we get there? Well, we got there because it just takes, takes this philosopher who comes up with this theory, some of whom meant what they said, some of whom meant something, but it was interpreted by someone else differently. And then this philosopher comes around and does this, and this does this, and this does this, and this does this. And this is the same thing with how we get right or wrong. I mean, pull up this picture. You can't see it. It's okay. Uh, so going all the way back, you, you trace this all down. Most of these names on this list of philosophers, you, you might have heard maybe if you're just a reader, but most of you wouldn't care. But here's the key. Got a list of about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten philosophers going back 600 years to the 20, and then all the way to the 20th century. 
who came up with a, a key idea that the next guy built on that moved it. And the last guy, the last guy in this chain philosophically towards the way that our culture views what's right or wrong would be summarized as saying, even if they were absolute truths, we can't know them. So we should focus on improving the world here and now. And that person would be John Dewey, the single greatest influencer of the American public education system in history. And by the way, you go, oh my goodness, well, he really did a, a messed up job today. By, uh, pretty much everyone in this room, you received a public education influenced by John Dewey. He's not a new guy. So it's building on all of these things, how we get there. Now, regardless of all of that, let's go back to what we've seen in the book of Jude. How are you gonna spot, know the real thing and spot the fake? You're gonna be grounded in the word. You're gonna build yourself up in the most holy faith. So that's what we're gonna do. So hope you got your Bibles. In case you can't keep up, you've got all the references I'm gonna to use tonight. Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one says this. I'm always amazed how hard it is to get to Genesis one, flipping through my Bible. You would think that it's at the beginning, but it is always the single hardest place to turn to, uh, to get there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you see God said, let there be light. There was light. God saw the light was good. God said, let there be waters. God said, let the waters gather. Let's see, God created the different lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. And God saw that it was good. Verse 18 Verse 25, after creating all the animals in the earth, specifically on day six, the land animals, God saw that it was good. Verse 31, God saw all he had made after creating man and woman. Behold, it was very good, or behold, it was very good. And if you flip over to chapter two, The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. So you see right off the bat, the very first words that we get from Scripture that introduce us to who God is, tells us what we've already seen. God is objective. He's eternal. He's absolute. He's creator. There's already hints here in chapter one that he's not just a, 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 a singular mono being like you and I are, but there's He's one God, one being, but there's multiple persons because we see God creating. We see the spirit hovering over the deep. God says, let us make man in our image. And then God singular makes men and women, humankind in his image. We see these hints, but we also see something else that God has opinions, that God sees some things as good and he sees something that's not good. And this is before even sin enters the picture, that, that there is a standard that God is, and this is part of what makes the, the Christian God incredibly unique. In fact, Francis Schaeffer said it this way, at first this may sound trivial, but in reality, it's one of the most profound things one can say about the Judeo-Christian God. He exists. He has a character. Not all things are the same to him. Some things conform to his character. Some are opposed to his character. There are things that please him and he approves of. There's things that fail to please him and he disapproves of. Right off the bat, we see that there is an aspect of right or wrong, good or bad morality that is connected to God. 
Now turn over to the opposite side, Mark, Mark's gospel, chapter 10. Be a familiar story to some of you. The rich young ruler walks up to Jesus, and I would be in Matthew, not Mark. I apologize. I'm going to be ready one day when I have to get glasses. All y'all make fun of me. It's okay. Every day I get one day older. It's a joke. It's a joke. It is a truth. It's also a joke. (laughs) To to, to get me over to Mark. Okay, Mark, here we go. Uh, Rich young ruler walks up to Jesus. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So all of a sudden, now he's dealing with an issue uh, calling this, this young man to, to salvation. But notice what he says there. The standard of good is completely and totally tied up to God and God alone. No other being can claim good. The definition then of good is God. God defines good because God is good. Now here, if I were to ask you this question, how do we know what is right or wrong? Non-rhetorical, give me some answers. How do we know what's right or wrong? Say what? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's, that's a whole different moving all the way down the ethical chain as believers. We've got the Holy Spirit living inside of us, convicting us of right or wrong. So he, he's, he's, he's revealing, he's convicting, he's establishing, but how do we know what is, what is actually right and wrong? So here's the key that I'm trying to drive at. I wonder how many of us would say, well, how do I know what's right or wrong? Well, pastor, because God tells us what's right or wrong. And that is true, and it is also wrong. Here's why I say that. God does tell us, in terms of inform us of what is right or wrong. But God does not decide right or wrong based on decisions or decrees as if God one day set up before he created the world and said, okay, here's a list in all of my knowledge. Here's every action a moral being can take. These actions will be good. These actions will be bad. That is actually Allah. That's the theology of Islam. In Islam, what is right or wrong is determined by what Allah decrees. And here's why that idea is dangerous. Could, if, God, if what's right or wrong is determined by what is decreed, well, could God change his mind? You said this yesterday. Could he say something? No, you say, oh, well, Pastor, that's not a problem for our God. Our God's the same yesterday and forever. He wouldn't change his mind on what he says. Okay. But then it also means that it opens the door for, could God say this is right or wrong and it's not gonna change, but God not follow what he says is right or wrong. God be different than what he says is right or wrong. Do what I say, don't do what I do. There's problems. Our God does not decide right or wrong arbitrarily. Our God on the basis of his very being, character, and nature determines right or wrong. So your definition is 100% right. How do we know it's right or wrong? It's not whether it lines up to what God says or not. It's whether it lines up to who God is or not. Now we know what's right or wrong because God tells us. 
Does that make sense with everybody? If not, you better start throwing some hands up and I'll keep explaining. God does tell us right or wrong, but him telling us is not what makes it right or wrong. That's how we know it. What makes it right or wrong is God's own personal character, his being, which means this. If God says something is wrong, use the biblical term, if God says something is sin, then by definition, sin is something that is completely and totally opposed to and against God because God does not possess any sin. That means fundamentally, when we talk about doing what is right or doing what is wrong, whether something is good in the eyes of God or is sinful, it's not just a matter of, well, this was the rule and I broke the rule. No, this is the relationship and I broke and targeted and rebelled the relationship. And this is massive for why when we, we exist as sinners, our sin is not simply just falling short of God's rule standard. It's falling short of God. Notice what it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's arbitrary standard. No, all have sinned and fallen short of what? God's glory the expression of his character, goodness, and perfection. God's glory, who became incarnate, Jesus Christ, all have fallen short. This is a massive shift. Uh, so this is why our ethics, understanding what is right or wrong, is inseparably tied to who God is, our theology. Because who God is determines what is right or wrong. God is truth, absolute and objective. So God is good, objective and absolutely. He is the standard of what is right. His standard is objective from human agreement. Doesn't matter what we have to say about it. It's absolute for all people in all places. To be wrong then is by definition to be in rebellion against God. So the task of biblical ethics is not figuring out what the rules are. It's understanding who God is and what actions are good in light of his character and what actions are wrong in rebellion and grievous to his character. We know God is good. We know God is ethical. This is all over scripture. Uh, flip flop back with me. Exodus chapter, 20, uh, chapter 34, listen to how God, Moses asks God, God, I want you to bring all your glory and I want to see your glory. God said, whatever you ask to do for you, I want to see your glory. So God says, well, no man can see my glory and live, but here's what I'll do. I'm going to hide you in the rock and I'm going to pass by my holy presence and all my glory. And, and, and I will declare my character to you. And this is how God reveals himself. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet by no means will leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children on the grandchildren uh, to the third and fourth generations. God reveals himself as an ethical being. He doesn't say, ah, the Lord God, invisible to the naked eye, made up of spirit and essence. Now, all those things are true, but, but you notice how God reveals himself? He reveals himself with terms that describe character, that describe action, that describe morality, compassionate, 
stirred and moved deep in action at seeing those who are afflicted and moved to to act to, to bring relief. Gracious, meaning the way that God relates to people is not on the basis of their goodness or lack thereof in our case, but on His. He doesn't relate to people on the basis of whether they earn it or not. He relates on the basis of His sheer graciousness. Slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, a faithful, steadfast covenant love, truth or faithfulness, who forgives sin. But then he also in the same breath says, who makes sure to carry out just punishment on sin. He's a just God. He, God reveals himself ethically. This is why, and this is even the basis when Paul really gets into the weeds in Romans chapter 3, about how our salvation works, how can it be that God, that by, by faith, by grace through faith, God, God justifies us? And here's what he says in there. It says we're justified by uh, being justified as a gift of God's grace through the redemption in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Remember propitiation, that sacrifice which is made that satisfies the just punishment for wrongdoing, that, that takes two parties who are in open hostility and satisfies whatever wrongness has been done there to bring two parties back into a right relationship. The propitiation... This was to demonstrate God's righteousness. That's an ethical statement. God's right standing, his, his ethical purity, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Meaning that when God, God, um, God didn't just forgive us and go, ah, well, your sin doesn't matter. Our sin matters. And it was dealt with in full by Jesus Christ. So God is both just, he has fully poured out his wrath on my sin. And he's also justifier, able to declare me righteous and able to be reconciled to him without any other payment to be made because Jesus became my sin that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God is an ethical God. God is a God of morality. This is our whole hope. We won't turn there, but go to, the, go to Revelation. Those who... Why does Satan get judged? Why does the beast get judged? The fallen angels, why do they get judged? Why do those who are outside of Christ get judged? And, and why are those who are inside of Christ get a new heaven and new earth? Because God himself is good. He is ethical. He is the source of what is right and what is wrong. Now, here's the reality of that. If God himself is good, one of the truths we know about God is God is a God who wants us to know he's God and what he's like as God. God reveals himself. And we looked at this a year ago. There's two, two primary categories when we talk about God revealing himself. He reveals himself, we say generally, meaning any human being living at any time in any place can look out and know these truths. And then he reveals himself specifically, perfectly in Jesus Christ, and then without error in the written word in the original manuscripts, and then based on if you have a good translation, which those exist, praise God for us in English. God reveals himself. In fact, isn't this interesting? Genesis 3, what does Satan tell them? Oh, you'll be like God, knowing right and wrong. They take the fruit, they eat. It says their eyes are opened. Now, here's what's interesting. In that moment, their eyes are opened, 
They now feel shame in the presence of God's glory. Their, their ability to reflect God's image is not removed, but broken. There's brokenness in their relationship with God. There's brokenness in their relationship with each other. There's brokenness with their relationship to creation and to their purpose. There's broken in relationship. But here's what's interesting. You know what's now present, even in their brokenness? Well, what came with sin? The knowledge of good and evil. So if Adam passes sin down, right? Romans 5 talks about Adam passes sin. You know what else gets passed down in human nature? A knowledge of good and evil. This is why Romans chapter 2, and I will encourage you, go ahead and turn to Romans. It's a key passage for us. Romans chapter 2 makes the statement... Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have access to the law, the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having a law are a law in themselves. Here's what that tells you. He's in a bigger conversation that we're not looking at, but here's what that tells you. Why is it when you look out throughout history, there are general established rules of morality that by and large are always true in every society, no matter where you locate them and how advanced or how primitive they are? Theft of private property is always wrong. Here's the crazy, here's what's funny about our society for as messed up as we are sexually in our society. It is still culturally shameful to the news to cheat on your wife. I mean, you know, if a politician today, ooh, found out about an affair, you would think based on our rules for sexual, I mean, ah, who cares? You can do what you want. That's not, there's still this idea that adultery is wrong from a shame standpoint. Maybe not, I don't know, you know, it's not really sin, but you, you catch my difference. I mean, look how many famous news anchors in the last few years have been kicked out of their job for having an affair. That's pre it's honestly pretty wild when you think about the rest of the stuff we're okay with in our society. But here's the point. There is something written on our very beings as human beings. There is some level of awareness that there is an absolute standard of stuff that is right and good, and there is therefore an absolute standard of stuff that is wrong and bad. Now you go, well, okay, but pastor, if that's the case, why is the world so messed up? Flip your page back to Romans chapter one. We just went in reverse order. Says, here's what it says in Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Remember wrath? That's not God flying off the handle like a bull in a china closet. That is the settled, good, righteous, just punishment that is due for sin, right? When someone commits cold-blooded murder and the judge finds them guilty of the death penalty, we, go, we don't go, wow, the judge is flying off the handle. You go, okay, that guy literally is a serial killer who, who, who raped and killed 70 women. Yes, he deserves the death penalty. That is the just, good, right? The wrath of God is the just, good, righteous punishment for sin. So, so this, this is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Now look what it says. Who, and this is an active verb, suppress, are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God, and this is a fascinating statement, is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Here's what he says. What does sin, again, talking about right and wrong, what does sin do to us as human beings? Well, on one hand, it's it's how the knowledge of good and evil come, but what does it do? We are predisposed, enslaved to choose sin, that which is against the character of God. It's why Ephesians 2 makes a statement that by nature, we are children of wrath, children of rebellion. It's not trying to, he's not trying to hate on humanity. It's just the nature of we are born into rebellion. Here's what he says right there. He says that there is, there is somehow in us, now catch it, he's not saying that everybody knows Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior in their heart from being born. That's not what he's saying. He says there's something about how God has created us as his image bearers. There is some kind of knowledge that we are made by God and for God that still remains even in the brokenness of our humanity. Ecclesiastes, you've heard me use the verse before, would use the phrase, God has set eternity on man's heart. There is something in every, and understand what that means. Remember, God's word is true regardless of what, our, uh, what, what it appears to us. This means that in our world of all these people running around going, this is, this is that, that's not, you know, th- this sin is okay, this sin is okay, this sin is okay. This tells you that even though it may not look like it to our minds, somewhere deep in that human being, there is something going, this is wrong. Now, why aren't they responding to it? Well, it says that too. They are in our sin as humans. Now, I'm, I'm, some stuff has changed for those of us in Christ. But as human beings born, that knowledge, we are actively suppressing, trying to silence it, trying to stack as many pillows on, on whatever uh, little kid electric toy is annoying you in your conscience. We're trying to stuff as many pillows on top of it to drown out the noise in unrighteousness. That's the plight of the human condition. We are taking all these sinful acts and trying to stuff and cram down that, that, um, that knowledge of good and evil that is crying out in our hearts. So all this to say, here's the reality. God is good. The nature of right or wrong is something's right or something's wrong on the basis of who God is. God re- shows himself to be an ethical being. And here's the reality. This passage also tells us God didn't leave humanity in the dark. God wrote, uh, if you want to call it a conscience, inside of, the, even though it's broken, inside of the human, human being. God made clear things through creation. God literally said, listen, there's certain aspects of, of the fact of who God is, that he's got invisible attributes, that he, he is powerful, though unseen, that he is divine, that he is, those things are, can be understood through creation. You don't even have to have a Bible to understand those things. But why does nobody in creation understand those things? Well, he goes on in this chapter to talk about because in their suppression of truth, they choose to worship creation rather than the one who made it. There is this active rebellion in the human spirit, in the human heart to push all of that down. And this is why then God does specific things like with his chosen people through who are meant to be a light to the world. God comes down at Sinai and doesn't just say, hey, I'm God, let's be in a relationship. He comes down at Sinai and says, hey, I'm God. This is who I am. This is what is right. This is what I expect of you. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship no idols. You shall honor, honor, the Sabbath. Uh, you shall, uh, honor your father and mother. You shall honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You should... Sorry, I mixed up commandment three with commandment five. But you catch what... He comes and gives specific revelation 
And he doesn't just, the, the Ten Commandments really summarize almost every ethical thing you can, you can come up with. I mean, every, der, 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 every sin you can tie back to some kind of uh, uh, um, starting point, least common denominator in the Ten Commandments. But he goes on to give specifics. And then it's interesting when Jesus shows up because humankind has gone, oh, don't commit adultery. That just means don't physically sleep around on your wife. And then Jesus shows up and comes to the Sermon on the Mount, whereas the perfect revelation of God, he authoritatively interprets the law of God and says, oh, no, 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 you've fallen way short. Here's actually what it is. If you've ever lusted after another person who's not your spouse in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. I've never cold-blooded murder. Have you ever hated somebody in your heart? You're guilty of murder. He comes in in the Sermon on the Mount and completely unpacks and exposes the full ethical ramifications of what's right and what is wrong. God reveals this. And so the problem, that, and this is what's unique, every ethical system, remember every worldview has to answer certain key questions. How did we get here? What's our purpose? But then the second category of questions have to do with what went wrong? What went wrong? What's the problem? And the Christian answer, the biblical worldview answer is what went wrong? Sin. Sin broke this. Sin is the reason we fall short. Sin is the reason we need a Savior. Now, biblical worldview would tell you this. There's right and there's wrong. It's absolute, true for all people, for all time and all places. It doesn't change on your situation. It's objective, meaning it doesn't matter what any one of our opinions is of it. It matters the fact that it has to do with God. By the way, I do notice the clock. I promise we're going to wrap all this up here, so don't worry, choir people. You're going to get to choir on time. Oh, that's right. There's no choir night. Never mind. We'll be here for another hour. Uh, I forget that. That's why you're still here, Daniel. You, hadn't, you haven't moved yet. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, now I've got to recatch where my mind was. Um, what we understand then, and this is, this, is, this is moving out a little bit, and so I'm, I'm just going to make this statement, and then we'll, 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 we'll come to the, the, the conclusion here for what Scripture gives us. Um, understand about humanity who is unsaved. Scripture describes us and our unsaved condition as fully enslaved to sin meaning that it should, as those who've been saved, who've been rescued, who've been pulled out, it should shock us when unbelieving people do good things. I'm not using good in the same category as God says he is good, but you catch my drift. Honestly, it should shock us that there has ever been in our culture as much respect for any aspects of biblical morality because the nature, our nature as human beings is complete and in total enslavement to sin. A lost person can't do anything other than sin. They're enslaved to sin. You go, how can people be so blind? Because they're blind. I mean, I'm not trying to be harsh, but sometimes I think we as believers, I just, how can people be so, look at the nuttiness of what's getting promoted out. I mean, it should be obvious plain as day some of the nuttiness of some of the stuff specifically in our society today. How can people be so blind? Well, Paul tells us that if they're unbelievers, the enemy has literally pulled a blinder over their eyes and they can't see. which is where there is an aspect of that that should absolutely stir up in our hearts as reflectors 
who've been reconciled to God and able to rightly reflect Him in His image, how does God look at humanity? Compassionately. What did Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them. Why? They have a, a clue what they're doing. What did Jesus He felt compassion when He saw the masses searching? Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I mean, you can go on and on and on down the line. So, understand the problem is we're sinners. Now, here's the flip side. The solution is Jesus. The solution is what Jesus accomplished through his death. He became our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him through his death and his resurrection. Because if he stayed dead, we saw Sunday, there's no hope for anything. But he died, so he satisfied the punishment for our sin. He paid the price and he's risen, which means he's conquered death and he can actually give the salvation. He can actually stand in that eternal gap, that eternal chasm that separates us from God morally and relationally. Jesus comes and stands in the gaps and brings us together, moves us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and brings us together. He's our seat at the table. So what does that do to our understanding? What is our ethical system as believers? Matthew chapter 22 How do we then, we understand the standard of right or wrong is God, but how does being reconciled to God through, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, how does it transform our understanding of of doing what's right and not doing what's wrong? When the Pharisees heard Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. This is verse 35. One of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him, teacher, What is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. You shall, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. A.K. on these two commandments summarize the whole Old Testament. He quotes... Get ready to turn. Sorry, we're turning all over the place in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6. He quotes from what what is called the Shema. Here's what it says. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's the one true God. And he's not multiple gods. He's one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And remember, too, in that context, I, 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 and I've done this before, but you should love the Lord God with all your, all your, all your mind, your, your intellect, with all your heart, all your emotion, with all your body. With all, that's all true. You should love God like that, but that's not what Jesus or, or, or God is saying in the Old Testament. It, that, is, that is a Hebraism to say you love the Lord God with the totality of your being. There's no part of your life that gets to be segmented out of the love of God and love for God. So here's... Here's the, what, what, is, what is, how would you define biblical ethics? It's the agape love of God for humanity, which transforms us in salvation to where our standard of ethics is not a duty. This is why we're not, uh, this is ultimately why we're not deontological. Deontological has to do with one's duty to do what's right or wrong. Our relationship with God is such that we're not to do what's right or wrong out of duty, but out of love. What drives our lives, what drives us to say no to sin, to crucify the flesh, to say yes to God as he sanctifies and transforms our life with the salvation he's given us, what does it all is love. 
And, and honest, as I, as I was processing through this today, specifically with this teaching, this should not be shocking to us. Because if all of ethics are, if all of what is right or wrong is on the basis of the character of God, how does God primarily reveal his character to the world? For God so loved. So what should transform and be the sum total of how we live our lives? For God so loved and transformed us in salvation. Just look at it. I won't even quote it. Just 1 John chapter 4. This is what it is. God is love. Well, in this, God's love is made clear. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then it goes on to say, we love because he first loved us. So the whole driving force of the Christian life, the whole driving force to say no to sin and yes to God's ways, the whole driving force to make hard sacrifices, to, to, to choose not to live like this world, to choose not to live like this culture, it's not duty, it's love. And Jesus said the same thing. If you love me, obey my commandments which you can hear in one way. Well, the, the, the definition of whether or not you love me is whether or not you're seeking to obey my commandments. That's a true statement and it should cause all of us to look at our lives. But it's also the inverse. You wanna know how to obey the commandments of God? Put all your effort and energy and time into loving him. And if you love him, you will walk in the spirit and by the grace of God, you will do his commandments. When we as believers fall in sin, it is because somewhere we have believed a lie rather than truth and somewhere in believing that lie, we have loved what it lyingly promised us rather than God. And here's also what's interesting as we think about it. There's joy in love. And this was a defining mark. Um, when you look at church history, I, I just get curious, I, I, I am one who struggles in my, my relationship with the Lord and the way I'm wired. I can struggle personally with really harping on to follow Jesus means to suffer and it's, and it's hard and it's this and that. And my dad, and, I, and, I'll, you know, and there's countless, oh my goodness, countless examples of brothers and sisters historically who've, who've suffered for the faith. And you go, I, I, I wanna give anything up. And, and don't mishear me, in our effort to love God, there will be hard things that do feel like sacrifice. I by no means am trying to use some modern day Disney channel, feel good always, that's what love is. Lo love is so much more and beyond in, in anything Disney channel puts out. And I know some of you are like, we don't watch Disney channel, West. that's great. Hallmark, uh, pick, pick your favorite emotional, uh, where, emo where love is just all about feeling good, fill in the gap. And my dad would always write and said, yeah, yeah, but those Anabaptists, who when you became an Anabaptist, which the primary thing that would distinguish you back in the day to be an Anabaptist, not anti-Baptist, was your, your, your belief that you needed to be baptized as a regenerated believer by immersion in defiance of both the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, and the, what would, the precursor of the Presbyterian Church. The average lifespan when you became an Anabaptist, which we would all, back in that day, we would be Anabaptist based on our theology. It's not one for one, but that's, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't fall with the others. The average lifespan was 16 months before you were martyred by one of those three groups. If you were a woman, they would take mercy on you and drown you. If you were a man, you might be drowned. You might be burned at the stake. Some of, some of the best Anabaptist preachers, their tongues were cut out. They were salted. They were put gunpowder packed in their beard to blow their face off as they went to the stack. Died brutally. 
But people came to faith in Christ. At their, and one of the things, and, and this is a particular study for my dad, he'll tell you is part of the reason is they were filled. What they preached was a freedom from sin and the curse and brokenness. There was a joy that filled their relationship with Jesus. That's what was, wow, your life's horrible, but I want what you've got. And it wasn't some kind of fake, life isn't hard, but it was this rich, what does joy spring from? Love. There's no joy in duty. There's joy that springs from a relationship built in love where I am now able to sit at the table and actually experience and receive the love of God. Keep ourselves in the love of God. Go back to Jude. What's the key strategy to not fall? It's to keep ourselves in the love of God. And now I'm transformed by that and my heart is driven by love for him and not just love for him, but did you notice where it carries over? It's love for him that carries over into love for each other. Love for each other in the church. Love for a broken and lost world. A love that is willing to speak truth, no matter personal cost. A love that is willing to suffer when that truth is rejected and hatred is brought. Turn the other cheek. Walk the second mile. Where's all that found? The Sermon on the Mount. God fleshing out. What does it look like to be transformed in ethics? And here's, here's one last thing. Back in Deuteronomy, here's what's interesting. And here's why this is so key. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord your God with all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. They should be the foremost pressing thing. And remember, heart. It's really that idea of will that center core of our being where our thoughts and all of that comes together and we will to do things. They shall be on your, they should, this would be what sits on your will. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your head, hand. They shall be on your frontals as on your forestep. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and your gates. He talks about these words, who God is and what our response is to God, to love him with all of our being. This is to sit front foremost on the corner of our will, and that in everyday life, we are to be bold in, in talking about these things. And he describes everyday mundane life there, not just Easter Sunday and uh, Christmas Eve service and, and Disciple Now weekend for the youth and BBS for the kids and on da, 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 whatever else thing. It's everyday mundane life. We're, we're, this is how we pass down. And I've heard this, this passage used many times of this is how we pass down the faith to the next generation. Now, here's a fresh thought, at least for, for me looking back at this passage. If our understanding of, we've got that what's right or wrong is based on the character of God, great. But if our understanding of how we're supposed to respond to that is, it's my duty to do right or wrong, we're not going to be very effective passing down the faith because passing down the faith is directly tied to responding to the ethics of God with love. And you can lovelessly follow in duty. Likewise, you can be faithful and dutiful, but because you love. And so as I have processed that recently in our lives, one of the things I have prayed uh, specifically for Bethany and I is, Lord, would you very clearly grow and enlarge in our love for you such that what Jesse and, and, and baby unnamed dubs in the womb would grow up in a house where they don't see the boxes checked of saying the right things and doing the right things, 
but they grow up in a house where what they see and hear and experience is a mom and dad who have been so transformed by you and experience your love that, that they are driven to follow you out of love. We've got to grasp that the ultimate sum total in the Christian life, how does all this worldview come down to us? It comes down that our response to who God is and what is right and wrong is to respond to Him in love. And again, don't mistake me. Sometimes love doesn't feel good. We all know that. We're all mature in the room. But I think sometimes, and I'll just be honest in my own life, I'm probably predisposed to be more of, I was the firstborn rule follower. Look at me with a disappointed look. I'm going to feel guilt and shame and confess everything I've ever done to you. That's the way I'm wired. So it's very easy for me to be very dutiful. But God's not looking for, for dutiful soldiers. He saved us to be loving children. And again, don't mistake, I'm not trying to say it's all feel good, and I get that that can get ripped out, and I've seen it ripped out by various pastors than this, but, but it's, it is a real reality that the aim and the focus of our response to God's right and wrong is to love Him with all of our being, and out of that love, to love each other in the same way that God loves us and we experience His love, and out of that love to love this world. And, and as I've said, sometimes that love shown to the world will mean we're at a hard point now. This is the last thought. I'll, I'll, I'll pray us out here. Um, obviously, there's some other things about what other worldviews have on your sheet. Don't worry, we'll, we'll hit that a different time. We are moving into a really hard point in society because of how much, it's interesting today, so much of the the political back and forth over all the, especially over all the sexual things, but even over, even over um, different moves towards socialistic type policies, this and that. What, what has been interesting to me is to notice in recent years how much every politician, with, there's a few exceptions, but how much every politician tries to quote Bible verses and use Jesus to justify their stance. It's really interesting to me that for as morally bankrupt as many of our leaders are, we have very few atheist politicians. I'm not sure a true atheist could run for president and get elected. But here's the danger. As we are trying, as various groups twist Scripture to promote and justify their sin, to use my phrase, to make the biblical case for unbiblical life, unbiblical actions, it's going to become hard. How do you debate that as a believer? I'm saying in past, oh, well, you're wrong. Here's what God says. Well, I don't believe in God. Okay, well, let's talk about proofs for God's existence. Let's go down. Now it's, well, well, you're wrong. Thus saith the Lord. And they said, no, you're wrong because you're just interpreting the scriptures wrong. Thus saith the Lord. And I, I have a suspicion that not, I don't know if sure, but, but it may be that ultimately we get to a point where we're not going to win. We, we're going to have to speak the truth intellectually. We can't negate on that. But it may be that we're not going to be able to really win any kind of debate intellectually. It may be the only way that we're going to win the debate is to take the blows on the cheek at the same loving character like Jesus 
the ultimate of which could even be not just taking blows to the cheek, but blows to the, to the life. It may be that the only way to provide the witness that would rip through the blinders of Satan may come down to how willing we are in our love for God to joyfully follow into suffering, loving the people who are harming us. That may be where we're headed because there is so much of an effort in our society today to twist Bible verses to say Jesus approves of what he doesn't approve. And that's a hard, th- that's a hard thing to, to try to talk someone out. I mean, there's ways to do it. Don't hear me. We, we, I mean, don't mishear me. We can do that. But it's key that we understand the ultimate goal of the good life. What is good? It's not what is good. It's who is good. God. What is good? What conforms to his character? What is good for me as a human? To live life in relationship with God in the ways that conform to his character. Well, how should I relate to this good God? How should I live out these things? Loving the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and neighbor as ourselves. So uh, hopefully, again, there's, man, so much more we could go, but we'll, we'll stop there tonight. Appreciate you being here. Um, if you signed up for the How to Read the Bible class on Sunday, uh, we will meet in here at 4.30. Uh, we'll get that announcement out Sunday as well, but we'll be in here at 4.30 Sunday afternoon. Five, not 4.30, correct. It's five. Yes. It's five. That's correct. Don't listen to me. I'll be in here at 4.30. I'll see you in here at five. Uh, um, yeah, there's the slide. Look at that. Um, and uh, come ready with your Bibles. We're going to drop into Daniel chapter 1 on Sunday. So uh, come excited to take a trip to, to Babylon, literally and metaphorically. So let me pray, and um, we'll finish out our time tonight. Jesus, thank you that you do not leave us questioning what is right or wrong, especially since there are consequences for right or wrong. You have always revealed yourself. You've revealed clearly what is right. You've revealed clearly what is wrong. And, and God, your heart in revealing what is right it is not just so that, it's not just to prove you're in the right. But Lord, it's actually out of love for our good because the only good for the human soul, for the human, for the human being is, is, is to live out the design that you who knows all things and would know every possible way to create us and you who, who is all loving and good, who would only desire to create the, the, the best of all possible ways, you call us to what is good because it is what is best for us. There is a sense in which the good is for, what is right is for, um, is for uh, human flourishing. But it's because human flourishing will happen and can only happen when we walk in line with your good. And Lord, there will come a day where there will be no more sin, where there will be no more who choose sin, where, where those of us who are in you, Jesus, we will be with you in a place where you will bind all that out and it will be flourishing for all eternity. But as we find ourselves here and now, Lord, as we find ourselves confronted with our own sin, as we find ourselves tempted by sin, as, as we find ourselves living in this world buffeted uh, by, by a world that, that screams and, and, and seeks to coerce and lies with real, Lord, a real enemy, may we be driven to do what is right. Because we are so transformed by the reality that you love us, 
that we love you with all of our being. And Lord, that we are marked as people, that Lord, if it comes to a day where people in our community go, I can't stand those people at First Pflugerville. May they be left with nothing else. I can't stand them. They love Jesus so much and they are so loving to all of us and it drives me nuts. Lord, may that be our witness. Lord, so that those who would slander us, those who would curse us, those who would, would, would be left going, why do you love so? And we'd be able to say, well, let me tell you. Lord, may make us a people who love you, who truly love each other, and who really do love this world as you. So, Lord, thank you for the, our church family. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in the room. Um, God, you just opened doors. We look to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.